So we've been going through this series that I've called Shining Lights, using this idea of the lampstands, right? The lampstands in the book of Revelation is symbolic, Jesus says, for these churches that he's writing lights to. And so like these churches, we want to make sure that our lights are shining about. And so the, the sermon series has been looking at the, the seven letters that have gone to the seven different churches listed in the book of Revelation. We've been trying to glean what, what truths, whether it be for commendations or critiques or comforts that we can be pulling in the 21st century from the experience of these churches. Uh, we've been using this map to track our progress. Again, that's modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor is the region. Let's zoom in on those those cities. So those are the seven cities, and that little star down there in the bottom left is the Isle of Patmos, where John uh, received this vision from the Lord that was Revelation and, uh, and, and penned it, penned, penned the letter to be sent out. And so just to kind of uh, take a, a couple steps back, a couple weeks back, our journey started with that first church there on the western side of Ephesus. Right, Ephesus was, uh, had a significant presence uh, both in Asia Minor and also in the New Testament. Think about the book of Ephesians, an entire letter, an entire book of the Bible dedicated from Paul to this church and what's going on there. You had Timothy, Paul's young apprentice, who was the pastor of the church. So Paul wrote some letters to Timothy. So again, if, if Ephesus, the, the Ephesians have a number of letters, a lot of, a, a, a lot of um, you know, credibility in, in the New Testament. Now, if you recall, when we looked at that first letter at the beginning of chapter 2 of Revelation, uh, the, the message from Jesus was basically that from the outside, you're doing everything right. You've got good doctrine, got good teachers, good works. But he says, I have this against you that you have lost the love that you had at first. But the Ephesian Christians, by all external metrics, were crushing it. But internally, they weren't loving the Lord or others with a very compassionate heart. Now, you know, we made our journey north up to Pergamos, Pergamum, and now we're heading back down towards Thyatira. And so as we come across this city, we're going to see that in many ways, this city is kind of like the inverse, the opposite of Ephesus. Right? They were doing a very good job. They're commended for their love of one another. But that love that compassion appeared to come at an expense of God's truth. Right? We have ample biblical source material for, for Ephesus, for the Ephesians, but contrast that, we have very scant mention of the city of Thyatira in the New Testament. Outside of this section of Revelation, the only place that the city of Thyatira is mentioned at all is in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas uh, are going through one of their missionary journeys. They're traveling across northern Greece, and they meet a woman named Lydia. And Acts 16, 14 says this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Right, that's it. That's the only other mention of Thyatira. So this figure, Lydia, that they mentioned was from the city of Thyatira, and the text says that she was a seller of, it says purple goods in the ESV, the NIV says purple cloth, and this fits with what we know historically, archaeologically, about this city, because it was a city known for its merchants and guilds. It was a place of commerce, and so that's the setting to which this letter was written. So let's look at it now. So if you want to pull out any Bibles or Bible apps, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, 
finishing up the chapter today, verses 18 to 29. We're going to go through the formula that we have seen in the last few weeks. So first, we're going to look a little bit at the, the language that Jesus uses to identify himself. We're going to look at his commendations, his critiques, and his comfort. And then we'll turn to application and try to allow this scripture to, to guide our lives. What can we learn from this? So hopefully I've given you a chance to find it. Follow along with me, please, as I read. So Revelation chapter 2, 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now Jesus here is a little bit more clearly defined than some of the other some of the other introductions that we have seen. He is labeled as the Son of God. Right? In addition, this title there is imagery. is described as having eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze. Right? This is language, as we've shared in previous weeks, comes out of the first chapter of Revelation. The beginning is John first encounters Jesus. Now, as is true in most of the letters, the characteristics of Jesus are meant to, be, to, to directly contrast the pagan setting that those earliest Christians found themselves in. Jesus is suggesting that he is the true version of all of the cheap imitations that are worshipped and paraded around the city. Right, that title, Son of God, is probably meant to be a direct challenge to the imperial cult, to the emperor. Right, many ancient kings and ancient rulers uh, described themselves as being the offspring of the gods. This was an effort to, to give them, to kind of heighten their authority and position so that they could maintain their, their rule, have security over it. But in addition to this, it's probably a slam on some of the patron gods of the city, in particular, Apollo. Right, so Apollo, I don't know if any of you remember studying you know, Greek mythology in school, but Apollo uh, was one of the mythological offspring of the chief god of the Greek and Roman pantheon named Zeus. 
And according to pagan mythology, Apollo was a son of God and happened to be one of the patron deities of the city of Thyatira. And Apollo was actually the god that was often linked to this worship of the emperor. And so, you know, keep in mind as well that Apollo is the sun god, right? S-U-N, God. So I don't think there's a coincidence that Jesus is described not only as the son of God, like offspring of God, but he is also described as having these fiery features that would, would kind of evoke the idea of the sun, right? The, the, these eyes of blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze. And that feet of burnished bronze is also probably relevant to a city that was known for its trades, including metalworking. And once again, this, this picture of Jesus that we see is highly relevant either to the particular context of the city or the challenges that the Christians in that city are currently facing. So let's move to his commendations. What are the nice things that Jesus has to say about his followers in Thyatira? Jesus states that he knows their deeds, he knows their love, their faith, the way that they serve others, how they are patient and endure. He says that their latter works exceeded the first. Contrast that with what Jesus said to Ephesus. Right, if you recall, right, Ephesus is praised for all the ways they're doing the right things, but they're lacking love, and they had failed to do the works that they had started with. Thyatira is the opposite of this, right? They're opposite of Ephesus. Their love has continued to grow, and the fruit of it is their works, which are far greater than they were at first. So they're kind of hitting the nail on the head where Ephesus was failing. But the criticism of Thyatira is also in stark contrast with Ephesus. Thyatira, much like we saw last week with Pergamum, has allowed false teachers to infiltrate their ranks to lead believers astray. We're going to circle back a little bit to that theme at the end. But I think this, demonst this demonstrates that we need to find a way to balance love and grace with truth, with justice. Right? Ephesus had truth. They tested false teachers. They removed them from places of influence, which was good, but they lacked love. And it's clear that a loveless legalism is not the path of Jesus. But Thyatira, in contrast, had love. They had works in abundance, but they lacked the discernment to make judgments between right and wrong doctrine and behavior. So also, a soft love that never challenges anyone is not the way to go either. Right? Keep that tension in mind as we continue. And I think it's important that Jesus provides this corrective, right? Because it's easy to read one criticism and then move the pendulum too far in the opposite direction, right? We need more love, all right, great, let's love and love and love. And that is a, a, it's, it's a great way to move, but can we move too far? We need to find that ideal place where both virtues of truth and love, justice and mercy, are upheld with honor and fidelity. So let's look at the rest of Jesus' critique. Similar to Pergamum, we have a pseudonym for a false teacher that they had empowered in their congregation. This false teacher, her code name is Jezebel, falsely claimed to be a prophetess. In verse 24, we see that she offered some type of deep secrets. We don't really know precisely what that is, but the important thing that we're to understand is that she is leading the people of God astray. This is exactly what we saw last week with Pergamum, with the, this prophet or false teacher that Jesus calls Balaam. 
Now, just to quickly refresh with you, because there, there's a couple of, of, of issues that Jesus has, and one of them is this food sacrifice to idols. So quickly refreshing what I stated last week, that you know, this is not meant to be a reference to the food, um, the meat that you would find at the, you know, the market that had been sacrificed, that had been offered to, to a, a pagan god or goddess. Last week I shared 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul is advocating. He says, you know what, you can eat the meat, you can, um, it doesn't matter whether it was re- offered to, to a pagan god or goddess, you, like you have a, a clean conscience, you can move forward with that. But what's in view here when it's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols are these guild feasts, right? The social clubs that you would go to join with others to share a meal offered to a god of the city, an emperor. A, a Christian's refusal to participate in these meals would be, could be economically devastating for them, right? Especially in a city like Thyatira, which had this merchant guild that was so well established. But we want to continue to build our biblical theology. So let, let me read from 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 23. So this is Paul writing, and remember, just a few chapters earlier, he said that it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He says this in verse 19 of chapter 10. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, I hope you can see the difference between those two perspectives of 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. Because here in 10, the focus here is about Christians refusing to, there's that language of table, participating in the table of demons or the cup. Think about when when, when we share communion what do we share? We share the bread, we share the table, we share the cup. There, there is something contradictory about us as Christians participating in communion, right, as, as a body of believers, and also participating in the, one of these pagan guild feasts where they're physically eating on behalf of a god or goddess. Right? The focus here in this chapter is about Christians refusing to, to participate in these pagan feasts. Because to participate in them was idolatry. It was a slap in the face to God. Again, I don't, I don't have too much more to say about that because, you know, we talked about that a lot last week. Um, I, I know it's, it, it kind of misses out on application because it's like not something that we regularly have to do. But the theme that I, wanted, that I pointed out last week was this is the idea of assimilation. Where are the places where we're kind of just part and parcel like the culture? Uh, there's no, nothing defining us. But let's get to the root of the figure of Jesus' ire, this, this figure named Jezebel. She's identified as an enemy of God's people. Now, any Christian who was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures would get this reference. Jezebel was the queen of the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in, his, in Judah's history. Actually, I think Israel's history, excuse me. Jezebel had a significant hand in undermining the monotheistic faith of Israel during this time. 1 Kings 18 and 19, excuse me, 1 Kings 18, chapter 18, verse 19, informs us that she was a personal patron to 850 false teachers, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. And that all of these, all of these false prophets, all of these false teachers ate at her table. She was responsible for state-sanctioned blasphemy against God. 
Additionally, we see in a few citations in 1 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19 that she was responsible for the slaughter of the prophets of the one true God, Yahweh. So she was trying to rid Israel of the true prophets, the true teachers, and at the same time kind of bringing in all these false teachers to, to lead the people astray. Now, I, want to sh- I shared this last week, but I want to ensure that I make this comment again this morning because Jezebel here is described as leading the church into sexual immorality. She's described as a harlot, a prostitute. And I think it's important for us to understand that this should not be understood literally or physically. That's not what the author, that's not what Jesus is pointing to. This language is meant to be understood metaphorically in a spiritual sense. Because the language that is used in Scripture time and time again borrows from this example, from this picture of marriage. When Israel was unfaithful to God, they played the harlot. They were adulterous. That's the language that the Old Testament uses. They had rejected their true husband, God, and had gone after these false gods in worship. Now, the reason that I want to make this point so clearly is because we saw these similar descriptions of Balaam last week. I don't know about you, but I've never heard Balaam, the term Balaam used in a pejorative way to describe someone with loose morals. But that's not the case for the term Jezebel. This, comes, this definition comes right out of Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It's the second one because the first one is, of course, referencing to the historical figure Jezebel. But the definition that Merriam-Webster gives is an impudent, shameless, or morally unrestrained woman. Now, this term of Jezebel historically has harmed women, particularly women of color. Every, every uh, year during the season of Lent, uh, for the last four years now, I've gone through um, a devotional, daily devotional called the Repentance Project. And the Repentance Project, an American lament, kind of tr- tracks us, right? Because Lent is this time of lament. It's a time where we recognize that we're not how we should be and the world's not how it should be. And they, they track through the great sin in American history, which is the sin of slavery, And they track how the ramifications of that, even hundreds of years later, is still felt in our society. And one of them, one of the devotions, uh, talked about this, this term Jezebel. And I want to read this to you, because this was newer for me whenever I was going through it the first time. But this quote comes from Reverend Aaron Clifford. And she says this, I quote, The early domestication and sexualization of black female bodies has resulted in an enduring triptych of stereotypes. The Mammy, Jezebel, and Sapphire. Now, after describing the Mammy, I mean, kind of the, the signature image of, of, of that is like uh, uh, Aunt Jemima, right? Like that, that kind of older, you know, woman, homemaker perspective. But she continues, uh, and I quote, focusing on the Jezebel, the Jezebel stereotypes are far more insidious and have been used to simultaneously sexualize and vilify. This stereotype is reflected in the continuing hypersexualization of black women in the media. In our passage, we see Jezebel associated with language of physical intimacy. But she's not the only one, even in the book of Revelation. The same type of behavior is attributed both to Satan in Revelation chapters 12 and 20, as well as the world systems in Revelation chapters 13 and 19. 
Even the city of Babylon is described with similar language in Revelation 18 to 23. And I think it's important, I share all this because I think it's important for us as a culture to reorient ourselves to the intentions of God in a passage like this. The figure of Jezebel is clearly an enemy of God, but we must be careful to not bring in our own cultural biases, our own stereotypes to that label, distorting it into something that it was not originally intended, especially as it's been turned into a derogatory statement used as a weapon against women of color. Now, as, as Jesus talks about Jezebel, he says that she is not willing to repent. And so as a result, she and her children, i.e., again, not physical children, but i.e., her disciples, the ones who follow her teaching, are going to suffer. I think it's verse 23, this language of strike with death. It's a Greek translation of a Hebrew expression that was used to describe divine judgment, especially as if it was associated with blasphemy. There was going to be punishment that comes. Now, before we completely leave Jezebel, I want to throw out one more observation from this text. Notice that Jesus has plenty to say in opposition to the teaching of Jezebel. He's rightfully angry about her false teaching. But all of her criticisms, all of the criticisms, have to deal with the content of her teaching. Out of all the complaints, her gender is not one of them. I don't want to belabor this point. I'm not trying to build an entire doctrine of women in leadership out of one passage, but I think this is an important one for us to tuck away as we form, you know, this idea of, I've used this term already today, biblical theology. Not just proof-texting passages, but see, what does the, the scope of Scripture say and communicate about something? All right, let's look at the words of comfort from Jesus. He says, to the one who overcomes, they will share in the reign over the nations with him with Jesus. The description of an iron rod comes straight from the messianic promise that's given in Psalm chapter 2, I think verse 9. But I love the contrast that's given, right? That rod, that rod of iron, it evokes images of sternness, strength, power, authority. It's used in the context of smashing clay pots, breaking things down. But verse 27 in the ESV says that they will rule with a rod of iron. Now, if you, have, if you just happen to have the ESV in front of you, you'll see there's a little footnote there for rule. And if you go down, it says that the Greek word for that rule is actually the Greek word for shepherd. Right? The, metaphor of, the metaphor of the shepherd denotes an intimacy as well. Listen to how Jesus' rule is described later on in the book. This is Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb, Jesus, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right, this rule that where we rule, kind of co-reign with Jesus, is marked by strength, but also a tenderness as well. And Jesus closes his promises, his words of comfort, by promising to them the morning star. And this is another messianic prophecy that comes out of the book of Numbers. Actually, it comes from one of Balaam's oracles about Jesus. Balaam says that sometime in the distant future, there's going to be a star that comes out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. 
And Jesus applies this title to himself at the very end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21. He describes himself as the, the, the descendant of David and the bright morning star. Now what we can learn from this is that Jesus doesn't just share his victory with his followers, but he continues to share himself as well. Let's try to take a step back and see if we can apply some of these themes of this text to our lives. And the primary focus that I want to see, to look at, is this tension that we saw exhibited between the Christians of Ephesus and the Christians of Thyatira. Ephesus shows us the dangers of a loveless orthodoxy. But Thyatira shows us the danger of a soft love that tolerates everything and makes no judgments between right and wrong. And this is doubly important in our post-Christian age, right? This age of increasing secularism. Where the line between, you know, where is the line between legalism and compassionate exhortation. It's clear that Jesus is not okay with a faith that propels us into right thinking but has no love and compassion. Right, truth is important, absolutely so, but you know where truth is not found? In the fruits of the Spirit. Right, the nine nine characteristics, the nine markings of what it means to be walking with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, you know the rest. Galatians 5. There's no mention of truth in there. But I think it's possible for us to take that liberty, that love too far, and then there's this kind of anything goes with no limits kind of attitude to our faith. Now we see this tension in our national context because we live in a pluralistic society. Pluralism is good. It creates space where multiple and even conflicting viewpoints can exist simultaneously. One of the benefits of pluralism is that I see the experience of someone who who may not look or think like me. Pluralism has created this context where it has amplified marginalized voices. It has articulated struggles and experiences in need of justice that, honestly, I may have been oblivious to Otherwise, because, simply because they were not my lived experience. But there must be lines that we are willing to draw between those of differing worldviews. Right? We want to hear the stories. We want to hear the experiences of others. But there's a, the dangerous side of pluralism is where we just try to mash everything together. We just try to validate everything. For example, a pluralistic society allows space for different religious expressions. And that can be good. We can learn from one another. We can respect one another. We don't have to have holy wars off of one another in a pluralistic, against one another in a pluralistic society. But the shadow side of that is if we try to harmonize them, if we begin to advocate for religious relativism, right, a belief that you know, all of these distinct viewpoints have equal val- validity, that they're all true. I mean, just from the perspective of pure logic, this is an impossibility. Take the Abrahamic faiths of monotheism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They believe there is one God. And then take an Eastern religion like Hinduism that believes in hundreds of millions of gods. They're mutually exclusive. They cannot both be right simultaneously. 
Either one is right or they're, maybe they're both wrong. Again, that's not what I'm advocating for. But what we see here in this particular passage is we see Jesus cutting across this pluralism, or maybe not pluralism, more relativism of the Roman Empire. Right? Jesus labels himself as the Son of God, the morning star. He's using very deliberate terms of exclusion against this backdrop of polytheistic faith. And so for us, this means we need to figure out where the line is. What are the things that are matters of just cultural preference, and what are the matters of, you know, quote-unquote, life and death, i.e. idolatry? What, you know, put another way, what are the hills that we're willing to die on, or that we should be willing to die on? Because frankly, we, die, we try to die on a lot of hills that perhaps maybe would be best not making, you know, I don't know, keep using metaphors, mountains out of molehills, you get what I'm saying. What are the activities that we can do with a clean conscience? Like Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 describing meat sacrifice to idols. And where is that line in the sand? Like these guild mules, which, you know, participate with forces that are antagonistic towards God. So just for example, just to kind of throw this out there, I had a pastor that once denounced the evils of yoga. Yes, yoga, you know, it originated out of a polytheistic context. But I know countless Christians who have benefited physiologically, emotionally, even spiritually with the practice of yoga. Again, there, there might, we need to have a discerning mind. There might be certain elements of, of you know, yoga, of, of Eastern mysticism, you know, that we want to erode a little bit, kind of strain out. I think Richard Foster talks about in his book, Celebration of Disciplines, one of his disciplines is meditation. And again, when we think of meditation, the Eastern way of doing meditation is about emptying yourself. That's not what Foster advocates. He advocates for meditation, but it's about filling ourselves, filling ourselves with good, filling ourselves with God and his truth. So something like yoga, for instance, I would argue might be more on the order of cultural preference, where we can practice it with a clean conscience as a Christian. Whereas something like perhaps inviting a Muslim imam, right, like a Muslim pastor, if you will, to give the opening prayer to your denominational gathering, you know, that, that might be crossing a line. We need to, we're not going to find a list anywhere that kind of puts, it'd be nice if there was, right, you have like a column A and column B, yes, you can do column A, no, you shouldn't do column B, but frankly, that list is going to be different for different people, because we're all unique individuals with our own contexts. And, and, and so, you know, there, there's not a black and right, black and white, right and wrong answer for each, for each of us. Right? We need to trust in the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, to give us discernment, to sense if perhaps we're getting that little twinge that nudge from God saying, you're kind of wandering in some territory you probably shouldn't be. I can't tell you where the baseline is. I mean, personally, I think the Apostles' Creed is a great place to start. Right? That, that really early statement, I mean, we're talking like within a couple of generations of Jesus, articulating kind of the essence of uh, the gospel. I think that's, that's a great place to start. Here's the thing. As we're talking about this, again, in a pluralistic society, trying to find that tension between a, you know, we, we don't have a loveless legalism, but we also don't want to say, like, well, anything goes. Do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. 
Because remember, Jesus never said never to make judgments about anyone. Usually what's quoted is he said, don't judge, lest you, you know, don't judge anyone lest you be judged. But really what he, what he means by that is, you know, it is above our pay grade to determine who's in and who's out. Right? I, I, I can't know who is actually a follower of Jesus and who is not. There might be, you know, I might have some avenues, right? Jesus did say that it's the fruit that kind of gives awareness to that of, of, of someone's life. But again, I can't read the heart. Even Jesus says that, that he alone in our, in our passage can read the heart and the mind. He knows what's going on, not me. That's what Jesus means when he says, don't judge others. You know, one of the other anecdotes that's used is that one where he's teaching about, you know, don't, don't try to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you got this, this huge honking log in your own. But he doesn't say just, well, leave it where it is. Leave everything alone. No, he says, get that log out of your eye so that you can have clarity in love to help your neighbor to get that speck out of theirs. I would argue that Jesus encourages us in love to make judgments, but not to be judgmental. Those are two different things. Right? We don't want to be like the loveless church in Ephesus. Jesus felt so strongly about it that he threatened to remove their lampstand, basically shut down their church. But it's also important for us to have some parameters in our worship of God. One of my favorite metaphors of the ancient creeds, right, something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, again, they say, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google them. But they describe those creeds as a fence, because the truth is God is infinite and God is mysterious and none of us, no human being on this earth now, with the exception of Jesus, of course, but now has, has a, a corner of the market of knowing fully who God is. We can't precisely nail him down. But what the creeds do is they construct a fence. It's a boundary line. I may not know precisely where God is, but I know he is inside there somewhere. May we be transformed by God's word. May we be guided by his spirit to walk that tension of truth and love. Now as we do so, let me, let's, let's bring some, uh, some questions for us to consider this week. I'll post these on Facebook. I think this is a really big one for us. When we are interacting with others whom we might disagree with, do you find yourself responding more out of truth and again, I, I'm talking about like extreme cases, not just like moderate perspectives. But do you err on the side of truth, which is like that judgmental attitude? You know, you're telling everyone why they're wrong. Um, you know, you're, you're <laughs> beating people over the heads with Bibles. Again, not literally, but figuratively. Or do you find yourself moving into uh, the, the extreme of love, which can yield itself to relativism. Like, right, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, and so I'm not going to, like, say anything that might be construed as a criticism, um, and, and, and we kind of just let people go off on their own. So that's the first one. Second is this idea of fences. You know, wh where is that baseline? And th this is one of the things that, that I, I've, we preached through the Apostles' Creed last summer, so some of you I know uh, probably are very familiar with it. Um, but I think that's, like, a great baseline for faith, you know, should we baptize babies or adults? How active or, you know, what does it take for the, the miraculous gifts to, to work? Speaking in tongues, the end times, right? There's so many of these things that it's like we don't, 
we, we have really well-developed theology, but you know, the person who, who has a different theology to ourselves is usually pretty well-developed as well. And so it, it, I don't want us to like break over those types of things. And that's something that we, we've tried as, as best we can to, to be as a church here. Right? That our baseline, if you will, is the, the Apostles' Creed. And so, you know, Google it. Read it over. See if there's any statements of faith from this ancient creed that you have trouble accepting. And think about why that might be. Right? What is it? Because, I mean, it really, it's, it's very, very basic of what the Bible teaches about, you know, God is the creator, Jesus is Lord, his life, death, resurrection, all that kind of stuff. Lastly, and this gets kind of to, to this term Jezebel that we talked about, because the truth is our words have power, and there's a lot of words, whether it be in the scriptures or just for, da- for regular use, that have been kind of twisted and, and used to, weaponized, if you will, against others. And so think about what words in our lexicon might we need to reconsider the way that they have influenced and caused harm to others? So those are the, the questions. I'll post them on the week. And if anyone has any questions about any of this for me, let me know. Drop me a line. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, guiding us in your truth and mercy. Lord, that we would be a people that are connected to you, that in that tethering we can learn through your spirit wisdom for uh, right and wrong. Lord, I'm reminded of uh, a friend of mine a couple weeks ago who talked about Mother Teresa's advice for life was to, to spend an hour with you every day and to do our best not to do anything wrong. And I feel like that's such a, a great way to think about our spiritual formation, God, that we are intentionally pursuing truth and right and not, you know, walking away from darkness, walking away from those things that stumble us. And that's all shaped and guided by the way in which, Lord, you are with us, that when we meet with you, you transform our hearts and you work in us. So may we trust and lean on your faithfulness to continue to guide us each and every day. Lord, may you bless us so that we may be a blessing to others. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.